during my many years of service as a church official, I have been asked by brides and grooms-to-be if I would perform their, their marriage ceremony. This I have always done when, I, when possible. And so I have united in the holy bonds of matrimony many couples, some civil marriages for time only, before I became the general authority of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And some in the temple I have married in the temple of God for time and for all eternity. I shall comment later on the difference. I suppose one of the happiest times in a person's life is <coughs> when, con, con, when con, well, contemplating marriage, particularly if the person feels that the choice of, of mate is the one and only. It is safe to assume to also that at the time of marriage, most couples are sure that the, the mates, the choice of mates, are right. But all too often, the honeymoon ends. Trouble forget, begins, and the marriage t terminates in, in divorce. The frequency of divorce has led some to a lifestyle where they feel inclined to escape from a seemingly meaningless ritual without, without the benefit of clergy or other legal sanctions. I often wonder how well informed they are about the purpose of the creation of the earth on which they live, and how well they have researched the scriptures to learn what God called man, why God created man and woman, and instituted the sacred ordinance of marriage. Let us consider first purpose of the creation of the earth. The scriptures make it clear that it was for other, no other purpose than for the, to provide a place for the sons and daughters of God to dwell in mortal life and prove themselves worthy through keeping the commandments to return to the presence of God from whence they came. Following the creation of the earth, God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he man. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. When God called <coughs> woman and brought her to, to, to man, he said, Therefore I shall leave shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Yes, marriage is ordained of God and following that first reference to the husband and wife we find <coughs> recurring scriptures as evidence that man and woman became husband and wife in marriage ceremonies followed by wedding feasts. We are not here just to eat, drink, and be merry. We have been given an earth to subdue and, la and instructions to multiply and replenish it. <clears throat> it is interesting to note that God said multiply and not just re perform or replenish the earth. It is important for us to understand as we can learn from the scriptures, that God is eternal, that his creations are eternal, and that his truths are eternal. Therefore, when, a man, when he gave Eve, Eve to Adam in marriage, that union would be eternal. Eternal is marriage is ordained of God and performed in his holy temples in, is eternal, not just until death. In Ecclesiastes we read, I know that whatever God doeth, it shall be forever. 
When Christ asked Peter who he was, Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus gave Peter the assurance that he knew this by revelation from God and that it would be upon this rock of revelation that we would build his kingdom, his church. Then he said, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of God and heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I think you know what my problem is. I'm going to ask Brother, or Brother Tom Fines if he'll come up and finish reading this talk for me, please. When the Pharisees came to Jesus, <clears throat> tempting him to ask about divorce, his answer included the following, Have you not read that that which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. These scriptures indicate that celestial marriage, ordained by God and performed by his authority in his holy temples, is eternal, and couples so united are sealed for time and all eternity. And their children are born in the covenant of the everlasting gospel. They will be an eternal family, according to their faithfulness. How does one prepare for such a marriage? All young people should consider very carefully and prayerfully the kind of mate they would like to have for eternity. And for the father or mother of their children. Parents have a responsibility to teach their children the importance of keeping themselves clean and pure, with high moral standards so they'll be worthy of the kind of men and women with whom they want to associate and marry. Someone has said that a man breeding livestock is very careful about what he allows in the pasture with his prized animals, but he lets his son or daughter go out with anyone without checking on their credentials. Another example is given of a man whose daughter came to him one evening and said, Dad, may I use the car tonight? He replied, It isn't here. What do you mean it isn't here? Where is it? I don't know. I let a man borrow it. Well, who is he? I don't know. I don't understand when he'll bring it back. The father then explained, saying, You seem to be quite concerned about my car, and yet you don't seem to appreciate my wanting to know about your dates, with whom and where you are going, and when you will come back. I have far more interest in you and your welfare than in my automobile, and I hope you can understand now why I ask you those questions. Children should understand and be made to feel the love and concern their parents have for them. If the proper relationship exists, they will willingly confide their plans and be happy to have their friends and parents meet. When young people come to me for advice about courtship and marriage, I usually suggest that they ask themselves the following questions. What kind of mother or father do I want my children to have? What kind of parent am I prepared to be? Do I want to associate with someone because of his or her popularity only? Or do I look deeper for spiritual and moral qualities? Am I analyzing our similarities and our differences in background, culture, and intellect? 
Am I prepared to adjust to these differences? Do I realize that such adjustments need to be made before marriage? These considerations will certainly help in making a proper choice for a companion with whom one is prepared to spend eternity. Then after the marriage, there are many responsibilities that cannot be taken lightly. But with each contracting party assuming his or her full share of the responsibility, there is nothing in this life that will bring greater satisfaction than happiness. As I have performed marriage ceremonies for young couples, I have talked with them about their future and the things that will go into building an increase of love for one another and into the establishment of a happy home. There are four specific things, among others, which I always include. First, I remind them to keep the covenants which they make as they are married. Second, addressing myself to the young man, I tell him to make her happy. If he will do all he can to make her happy, she cannot help but want to reciprocate and do everything she can for his comfort and welfare. Third, I stress the importance of clearing up any misunderstandings they may have. I remind them that it does not matter who is right, but what is right. They should never retire at night with any differences between them. As they kneel together in prayer and ask the Lord to bless them and help them overcome their difficulties, the sweet spirit of forgiveness will come into their hearts, and they will forgive one another as they ask the Lord to forgive them. Fourth, and very important, I remind them to continue to love one another. I tell them, too, that marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. Each must go the extra mile so there's no contention about the halfway mark. They must keep private matters confidential. And I advise them to solve their own problems without interference from family or friends. Sometimes young people do not have the patience to wait for material comforts and luxuries which they may not be able to afford. Wanting too much too soon can be a hardship on both husband and wife and financial burdens brought on by careless management are often a source of contention. It is far more important to build an atmosphere of love and harmony and spirituality in the home than to concentrate on material possessions, which can be accumulated in time as financial ability permits. Into this happy home and pleasant atmosphere will eventually come the children for which the marriage was consummated and who will add immeasurably to the joy and fulfillment which God the Father intended when he instructed Adam and Eve to multiply and replenish the earth. When parents understood the purpose of their existence, that they are literally the spiritual offspring of their Father in heaven, and they have a responsibility to provide mortal bodies for others, then they rejoice in the miracle of birth as they realize they are co-partners with God in the creation of each child who comes into that home. In keeping with the revelations on this subject, one of our early leaders, the late Melvin J. Ballard, said this, quote, There is a passage in our scriptures which the Latter-day Saints accept as divine. This is the glory of God to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Likewise, we could say that this is the glory of men and women to bring to pass the mortality of sons and daughters of God. 
to give earth life to the waiting children of our Father. The greatest mission of woman is to give life, earth life, through honorable marriage to the waiting spirits, our Father's spirit children who anxiously desire to come to dwell here in this mortal state. All the honor and glory that can come to men or women by the development of their talents, the homage, the praise they may receive from an applauding world, worshiping their shrine of genius, is but a dim thing whose luster shall fade in comparison to the high honor, the eternal glory, the ever-enduring happiness that shall come to women who fulfills the first great duty and mission that devolves upon her to become the mother of the sons and daughters of God. Unquote. We reaffirm today what U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt said in 1917. Quote, what this nation vitally needs is not the negative preaching of birth control to a submerged tenth and the tenth immediately adjoining but the positive preaching of birth encouragement to the eight-tenths who make up the capable self-respecting American stock, which we wish to see perpetuate itself." Unquote. There are various arguments for curtailing the birth of children or the size of families, but they are contrary to the laws of God. Our early citizens, who were patriotic and God-fearing and in many instances lacked for material possessions, believed in large families, and from that stock came some of our greatest statesmen and finest lawyers, scientists, and educators. They were self-made men reared in humble homes where spirituality abounded. The happy home is one where the family lives together works together, plays together, and prays together, where the parents show love and courtesy and demonstrate it to each other. Love is expressed often through actions and by the spoken word. We should not be like the Scotsman who, at the death of his wife, was receiving expressions of sympathy from his friends. One neighbor commented on what a fine person she was. Jock replied, I, she was a good woman, and I came near telling her so once or twice. <laughs> In a recent publication of a small pamphlet called Family Matters, the opening sentence was, Will your family survive the 80s intact? It mentions economic conditions and inflation, then says, Inflation isn't the biggest concern for many. Moral decay will be the key threat to family life in the 80s. That's what a majority of your neighbors told Better Homes and Gardens in a survey with a huge response. They blame inattentive parents and lack of a spiritual foundation. Today's trends give a parent much to be concerned about. The article goes on to list shocking statistics on divorce, teenage pregnancies, use of drugs and alcohol. Then the question is asked, what can be done to help children live happy, fulfilling lives? Dr. Paul Glick, the Census Bureau's chief demographer, gives this answer. Caring, attentive parents give children their best start in life. There is no real alternative for the optimum growth." Unquote. Dr. Sidney Harris, in a recent syndicated newspaper column, reached the same conclusion. He said, "Ask him why he didn't write." People ask him why he didn't write about the energy crisis, and he responded that he didn't have enough solid facts to make a judgment about that subject. He went on to say that he was also felt it was not important enough because mankind can solve its technical problems. 
But what concerned him was the greater problem we have which is moral, not technical. He concluded by saying that if we fail as a species, it will have nothing to do with energy or any other technological obstacle, but with the way we regard ourselves and others as threats and enemies rather than as members of the same family. He said that until we know who we are and what we are supposed to do, all our other knowledge cannot save us. Jesus Christ came to earth to give us that very message, who we are and what we are supposed to do. He gave us the gospel plan of life and salvation and said there was no other name under heaven whereby we could be saved. We have that same gospel restored in these latter days with the living prophet today, even Spencer W. Kimball, to speak for God, as has been God's method of communication with man through the ages. The answers to all life's problems are to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continuous revelation keeps us advised on current problems. To strengthening the weakening family structure, the Church has instituted the family home evening program, where at least one night each week the entire family meets together to solve problems enjoy recreation, and learn to better know and love one another. Here is opportunity for the parents to lead out as examples of love, kindness, courtesy, and support as father and mother together take their places as patriarch and matriarch of the family. In such a home, are taught the moral principles and other virtues which will help those family members to be the future leaders of their communities and countries. From such homes come children who will eventually establish their own homes, founded on righteousness and morality. They will enter into their marriage covenants in purity of body and mind so they too can be examples of virtue to their own posterity. I conclude by reading from a letter I received from a convert to the Church who, after the required waiting period, took his family to the holy temple of God for a sealing ordinance. He wrote, We love this Church, and we love the Lord and our Heavenly Father. We were on the verge of a total family failure when some of our LDS friends here began to work with us. Even now as I sit here and think back to Saturday, I have to be amazed at the way the Church has changed our lives from almost total family loss to an eternal family. Nothing can compare to seeing my wife and child dressed in white with a radiant glow around them and the feeding of the very Spirit of God whisper in my ear, John, they're yours for all time and all eternity. I know that through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through keeping the commandments of God and the covenants we make with him, we can each make of our home a heaven on earth while we prepare ourselves and our children to return to our Heavenly Father. I bear testimony to the truthfulness of the things I have said this day, and I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
What a beautiful song. As I stand here before you at this moment, I cannot help but think back to the day when I, as an investigator of the Church, was confronted with the missionary's challenge to prepare for my baptism. This step seemed to be too big for me to take, but because I already had a testimony burning within me of the truthfulness of this work, I knew that withstanding baptism would take away my right to speak to my Father in heaven again in prayer. So I accepted the challenge for baptism with a fearful heart, but I told the missionaries that I would do it only on two conditions. First, that I would never be called to any church position. (laughs) And second, that I would never have to give a talk. (laughs) Without the loving influence and the power and security of the Holy Ghost that I have received by the laying on of hands after baptism to help me, I could not have done anything in my various church assignments by myself. We as members have the privilege to bear witness of the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ through a divinely authorized man, Joseph Smith, in these latter days. As I bore this witness to a man just recently while I was serving as mission president in Germany, I saw that he felt very uneasy about my statement, and he, like so many others, responded with the question, Don't we all believe in the same God? This question hurt me. It always hurts me when I see how many people are so indifferent and show such a lack of awareness in this most vital questions in man's life. Can I find thee, my Father in heaven? Yes, one could say that regardless of when, where, and in what circumstances we are raised, we all long for our Heavenly Father and desire after him because we knew him before we came to this earth. But do we on this earth all believe in the same God? No, absolutely not. Men have created in their use of free agency all kinds of different interpretations of our Father in heaven and the purpose of our lives. In our mortal existence, there is no place for an uncertain, indifferent awareness of our responsibility and obligation to decide whom we should follow. Either we must attain a knowledge of our Creator and God who loves us, who wants to bring peace, dignity, light, and happiness into our lives, or by and by we will forget our divine origin and remain in the foggy mists of the deceiver, the adversary, who who cannot stand the fact that we, as living souls, did not accept his plan in our pre-mortal lives. He is fighting with all of his knowledge to lead men astray as they exercise their free agency, that he might make them his slaves. We are witnesses that the fear, hatred, despair, loneliness, and ugliness that people experience in their lives are the fruits of the influence of the adversary. It is obvious that his long-range, ungodly strategy to destroy our ability to truly love and have faith is aimed at these latter days before the second coming of the Savior when a decision is required of every man. If we do not decide to search out and accept the truth in the only way authorized by God, with all our might, mind, and strength, even when it means changing our lives completely, we will have to build our house on sand. The half-truths of man, often mingled with scripture, are sometimes strong enough to fulfill the expectations of the people for a season or for a generation, but they can neither bring them along the path of exaltation or eternal life, nor bring satisfying answers to the demanding problems of mankind in these days. Receiving and accepting Jesus Christ and His plan of salvation in its fullness and its truth means leaving the world and its earthly desires behind 
and building Zion around ourselves. When Christ walked the earth to prepare the way for his disciples, standing in purity and bearing testimony of the truth, he was a light in the darkness, and the darkness knew him not. The darkness organized itself to destroy him. Christ knew that this would happen not only to him, but also to all his true disciples. He said in speaking to his followers in Matthew 10, verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. When we really follow Christ in his true restored church, it will be manifested in our lives. The fruit will follow. The Holy Ghost will lead us to make uncomfortable decisions, to develop true love and faith by learning to sacrifice and to discipline ourselves. Our abilities will grow and will bring satisfaction and joy and happiness. Through the instrument of an ongoing communication with our Heavenly Father, a constant prayer in our hearts for direction in the many little decisions in our lives, we feel the softness of the yoke of Christ, as he said in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We will be led to live our lives his way and not the world's way. The men of the world feel secure when they with the question, don't we all believe in the same God? The answer to this question is no. The deceiver has initiated all kinds of philosophies and religions to lead people astray, to make them feel happy and safe in their man-made rationalizing and wickedness. He wants them to forget that someday we all have to stand in the judgment of Christ and report our deeds and words. The Savior said in Matthew 12, verse 36, but I, say, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. We are living in the glorious days of fulfillment, eagerly awaited by the prophets of old, Enoch, Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, and many others. In our day, the works of the deceiver of all the ages are being revealed by Christ through a living prophet. The disciples of Christ, the saints of the latter days, under the leadership of a living prophet, even Spencer W. Kimball, are taking the offensive to show the world the fruits of righteous living in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We testify with the angels that these are the days of warning for the people of the nations of the world, and that the time is near when it will be too late. We testify with the words of Amulek, a Book of Mormon prophet, recorded in Alma 34, verse 32, 33, and 35. For behold, this life is the time for men to perform their labors. And now, as I have said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For behold, if you have procrastinated the day of your repentance even until death, behold, ye have become subjected to the spirit of the devil, and he does seal you his. Therefore the spirit of the Lord has withdrawn from you, and has no place in you, and the devil has all power over you. And this is the final state of the wicked. The saving priesthood powers from above operate only through the principles of righteousness of man. These powers are working through the innocent and the pure in heart, as prophesied since the days of old. Thirty thousand missionaries are sent out to teach with this power, searching for those who are seeking the eternal principles of truth that they have been waiting for during their whole lifetime. Hundreds of thousands of priesthood holders and women witness daily through their righteous lives, their example and their testimonies, that they have been sealed by the Holy Ghost with the knowledge that these things are true. 
that the kingdom of God is in, this, is in the process of establishment in these days to prepare for the second coming of the Savior. With great excitement, the disciples of Christ in these last days are learning to accept the word given to the prophet Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 58, verse 64. For verily the sound must go forth from this place unto all the world, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth the gospel must be preached unto every creature with signs following them that believe. This work in these latter days is bringing to pass a prophecy of the prophet Enoch, the seventh from Adam, recorded in the Pearl of Great Price, Moses 7, verse 62. And righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the, the earth to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men, and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from these four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare, an holy city, that my people may gird up their lions and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. My dear brothers and sisters, I bear you my testimony that this is the day of the establishment of the kingdom of Christ on this earth, that nobody will be able to escape the decision to accept God as he really is and not as he has been made to appear according to man-made philosophies. I know that this is the work of the living God working through a living prophet, Spencer W. Kimball. I say this in humility, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Amen. A few years ago, we were standing in a large crowd of people gathered early in the morning along the waterfront of Apia Harbor in Samoa. It was the occasion of the national holidays when hundreds of people came to watch the Fautasi or longboat races that sweep in from the ocean into the calmer waters of the harbor to cross the finish line. The crowd was restless, and most eyes were turned toward the sea, watching for the first glimpse of the Fautasis. Suddenly there was a roar from the crowd as the boats came into sight in the distance. Each of them had a crew of fifty powerful oarsmen dipping and pulling the oars with a rhythm that forced the crafts through the waves and foaming water. A beautiful sight. The boats and men were soon in full view as they raced toward the finish. Even though these powerful men pulled with their might, the weight of a boat with fifty men moved against a powerful adverse force, the resistance of the water. The cheering of the crowd reached a crescendo when the first longboat crossed the finish line. We walked over to the place where the boats docked after the race had concluded. One of the oarsmen explained to us that the prow of the Fatasi is so constructed that it cuts through and divides the water to help overcome the resistance that retards the speed of the boats. He further explained that the pulling of the oars against the resistance of the water creates the force that causes the boat to move forward. Resistance creates both the opposition and the forward movement. Friction, or resistance, is an interesting phenomenon. Without this force, a person or a vehicle could not move about, or if already in motion, could not be stopped except by collision. Simple things like nails, screws, and bolts would not stay in place. A cork would not stay in a bottle. A light globe would drop from its socket. 
a lid would not stay on a jar. The law of friction or resistance that we think of as only applying to science seems to find application in our personal lives. This is probably what Lehi was referring to when he spoke to his son Jacob. He reminded Jacob of the afflictions and sorrows that had come to him because of the rudeness of his brethren and told him how these afflictions would ultimately result in good. These are the words of Jacob to his son. Thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. In other words, the afflictions that had come to him in the form of opposition or resistance would be for his good. Then Lehi added these words that have become classic. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. We come to mortal life to encounter resistance. It was part of the plan of our eternal progress. Without temptation, sickness, pain, and sorrow, there could be no goodness, virtue, or appreciation for well-being or joy. The law of opposition makes freedom of choice possible. Therefore, our Heavenly Father has commanded His children Choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. He has counseled us to yield to his Spirit and resist temptation. Free agency, of course, permits us to oppose his direction. Thus we see many who resist the truth and yield to temptation. Today, the Church stands at the summit of a century and a half of progress. The terrain over which we have traveled is a grim reminder that struggle, persecution, and sorrow have been the lot of our forebears. Kirkland, Jackson County, Clay County, Hans Mill, and Nauvoo seem synonymous with suffering. A part of the tribulation the Lord promised that his people would have to endure. As we look back in retrospect, we see that it was because of the opposition encountered in our early history that our progress today has been made possible. Out of that cauldron of persecution and heartache, the Lord answered the soul cry of the prophet Joseph Smith in these words. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. If thou, art, if thou art called to pass through tribulation, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. By the tribulation well endured by numerous of our progenitors, a desert blossomed as a rose. A tried and persecuted people provided a heritage of faith, and Zion put on her beautiful garments for all to see. One hundred fifty years of Church history provides us with a lesson that when resistance and opposition are greatest, our faith, commitment, and growth have the greatest opportunity for advancement. When opposition has been least, the tendency is to be complacent and lose faith. President Brigham Young said, Let any people enjoy peace and quiet unmolested and undisturbed 
never be persecuted for their religion, and they are very likely to neglect their duty, to be cold and indifferent, and lose their faith. This lesson, which applies to the Church collectively, also applies to individuals. Documented in Scripture are episodes from the lives of many former-day saints who, by personal sacrifice, opposition, and adversity, achieved their exaltation. From their biographies of struggle, I offer their testaments of faithful endurance. The classic example of faithful endurance was the Old Testament prophet Job. He lost all his possessions, suffered great personal affliction and physical pain. Some of his children met tragic death, and even his friends deserted him, yet he proclaimed his faith. God knoweth the way that I take when he hath tried me. I shall come forth as, as gold. His ways have I kept and not declined. We turn the pages to another exemplar of faith, Father Abraham. He fought in time of war, went through a period of extensive famine, saw his own father turn away from the priesthood, and suffered persecution for his faith, even to the point of personal death. After years of waiting for a son, he was ordered to sacrifice him to the Lord. He also experienced the sorrow of the loss of his beloved wife, Sarah. To the early saints of this dispensation, the Lord said, I, the Lord, have suffered affliction to come upon them. They must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham. Abraham's grandson Jacob was also no stranger to adversity. As a young man, he was estranged from his twin brother and didn't return home to see his father, mother, or brother for many years. He lived a life of mourning for a favorite son whom he thought dead, but who had been sold into slavery. He buried his beloved Rachel after she gave birth to his last-born son, Benjamin. He knew the personal sorrow of sons who were not valiant, but still blessed their days and posterity, so that their descendants are honored to be called the house of Jacob, the house of Israel. The New Testament records the life of one Paul of Tarsus from the day of his dramatic conversion. He experienced great trial and personal affliction. He was imprisoned for his faith, beaten, stoned, and by his own words, buffeted by Satan. Yet he wrote, Most gladly will I glory in my affirmatives that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Comparing his own adversity to that of Paul, the prophet Joseph once wrote, I feel like Paul to glory in tribulation, for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me. Last, I refer to the life of Nephi from the Book of Mormon as an example of faithful endurance. With his parents, he left prosperous circumstances in Jerusalem. Then for eight years, in great affliction, journeyed in the wilderness. The family then crossed uncharted seas to a new land. During this period, Nephi was assailed, ridiculed, and persecuted by members of his household. Following the death of his father, Nephi and other family members had to separate themselves from his older brothers because they sought his life. Out of despair, he declared, My God hath been my support. 
He hath led me through mine afflictions in the wilderness, and he hath preserved me upon the waters of the great deep. These are biographies of faith, men whom God has honored because they relied on him in times of their extremity. They learned the truth that God chose them in the furnace of affliction. Today, other biographies of faith are being written. Saints who, like Job, suffer physical pain, emotional sorrow, and even disloyalty from friends, yet remain faithful. Saints who, like Jacob, see sons and daughters not so valiant as they should be, but who bless them for their potential. Saints who, like Paul, endure great ridicule and endure to the end. Saints who, as Nephi, must separate themselves from family because of their commitment to the gospel. There are those who know pain and sorrow because of loss of loved ones, the spiritual sorrow because children go astray, those who experience loss of health, financial reverses, emotional distress, yet like Job resolve, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. We recently celebrated the birthday of President Spencer W. Kimball. <coughs> Most of us are familiar with the fact that Great adversity has been his companion for a great portion of his 85 years. He spoke from experience when he wrote these words. Being human, we would expel from our lives physical pain and mental anguish and assure ourselves of continual ease and comfort. But if we were to close the doors upon sorrow and distress, we might be excluding our greatest friends and benefactors. Suffering can make saints of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. We stand on the summit of 150 years of Church history. Yet there are other summits to climb before the work of God is crowned with victory. There will be tribulations collectively and hardships personally. That resistance so essential to the eternal plan. What makes us imagine that we may be immune from the same experiences that refine the lives of former-day saints? We must remember the same forces of resistance that prevent our progress afford us also opportunities to overcome. God will have a tried people. I witness today this truth from a verse of one of our favorite hymns. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. May God bless us to endure well the purpose for which we were sent, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Of the Savior. We have been uh, taught by our leaders, by our president and our leaders, that we should study and read the scriptures. We were told that in our meeting Thursday with the regional representatives of the twelve. And Brother Hinckley told us at our last conference to read the Book of Mormon, and he has had over a thousand letters back from saints advising that they'd read it. And the Savior of the world 
in, in, advised us to study and read the scriptures. He said, uh, study the scriptures. Within them you think ye have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. Is there anything more worth seeking than eternal life? And as we read the scriptures, and I've read the Book of Mormon during the past six months and most of the Bible, and I always find something therein that I didn't remember was there when I read it before. And that's what I'd like to use as a sort of a text to what I say here today that I took from the book of Nahum, chapter 2 in the Bible, which reads as follows. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightning. Could anybody have described an automobile better than that before there was such a thing as an automobile? Certainly they travel like the lightning and they look like torches especially in the evening when the lights are on and they, bust, they jockle, jostle against each other. If you want a good demonstration of that, just go to one of the body repair shops and see how many of them come in all uh, bruised up. Now, the thing that I like about that particular uh, passage of Scripture is that it's the day of his preparation. We live in that day. It couldn't have happened 500 years ago and this prophecy have been true. But today, there's no other answer for that prophecy than an automobile. And the importance of the prophecy was that it was the day of his preparation. And I like to think of the many passages of Scripture that designate the time of his preparation. I'll quote you from the book of Malachi, where the Lord, speaking through Malachi, said that he would send his messenger to prepare the way for his coming, and he would come swiftly to his temple. And who could abide the day of his coming? Because he would be as refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Now, obviously, that had no reference to his first coming. He didn't come swiftly to his temple at that time. He didn't come cleansing and purifying as refiner's fire and fuller's soap. But we are told that when he comes in the latter days, the wicked will cry out, let the rocks fall upon us to hide us from his presence. Now, obviously... When the Lord sends a messenger to prepare the way for his coming, that messenger can be none other than a prophet. When he came in the meridians of time, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for his coming, and Jesus testified of him that there was no greater prophet in Israel. And the prophet Amos tells us, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servant the prophet. Therefore, when the time of preparation comes, as I've read to you here today, the Lord couldn't prepare for his coming without a prophet. And that prophet of this dispensation was none other than the prophet Joseph Smith. And what he has brought forth is a fulfillment of so many of the prophecies of Holy Scripture that can't be found anywhere else in all this world. I like the statement of Peter of old, following the day of Pentecost, when he talked to those who'd put to death the Christ, he said, the heavens were to receive the Christ until the time of the restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. 
Search this world over, and you can't find a church that claims in a restitution of all things spoken with the mouths of all the holy prophets except the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if we believe in Peter as a prophet, and as the world does, then they can't look for the Savior's second coming until there is such a restitution of all things. In time to discuss that restitution today, but just think of the coming of the Father and the Son to teach the real personality of the Godhead, of the coming of Moroni with the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated, the coming of John the Baptist, as Brother Monson testified this morning with the Aaronic priesthood, the power to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins, the coming of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the Holy Apostleship with power to organize the church and kingdom of God in the earth for the last time, in fulfillment of the uh, promise made by Daniel in his interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream when he'd forgotten his dream, called all the soothsayers and the wise man, men and the astrologers, and none of them could tell him his dream. He heard of the man Daniel and sent for him. Daniel said, There is a God in heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, that maketh known thy dream and the interpretation thereof. Then he told him about the rise and fall of the kingdoms of this world until the latter days when the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that should never be destroyed or given to another person, but like a little stone cut out of the mountains without hands, it would roll forth until it should become as a great mountain and fill the whole earth. That establishment of that kingdom was possible in these latter days, and he said in the latter days, through the coming of Peter, James, and John, with the holy apostleship and the power to organize the kingdom of God, in the earth again. One of our missionaries in the South, while I was present, preached on that dream and the establishment of the Lord's Latter-day Kingdom. And I stood at the door at the close of the meeting. A man came up and introduced himself as a minister. He said, You don't mean to tell me that you think that that kingdom's the Mormon church, do you? And I said, Yes, sir. Why not? He said, It couldn't be. I said, Why couldn't it? He said, we can't have a kingdom without a king, and we don't have a king, so we don't have a kingdom. Oh, I said, my friend, you didn't read far enough. You just read the seventh chapter of Daniel, and you'll see where Daniel saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven under the Ancient of Days, and unto him was given the kingdom, that all other kingdoms, powers, and dominions under the whole heavens, should serve and obey him. I said, now, my friend, tell me, how can the kingdom be given to him when he comes in the clouds of heaven if a kingdom is not prepared for him? I said, maybe you'd like to know what's going to become of that kingdom. If you'll read a little further where Daniel said something like this, and the kingdom and the power and the dominion under the whole heavens shall be given unto the saints of the Most High God, that they might possess the kingdom forever and ever. And if that were not quite long enough, Daniel adds, yea, even forever and ever. Now, who are the saints of the Most High God? All you wonderful people who are listening in here today, and you're bearing the burden along with these 30,000 missionaries scattered all over this world to help prepare this kingdom for the coming of the great king. I like to refer to the experience of John the Revelator when he was banished upon the Isle of Patmos, and a voice from heaven said, Come up hither, and I will show you that which, which must be hereafter. This was all 30 years 
after the death of the Savior. And the angel showed John the power that would be given to the, to the evil one, to the devil, to make war with the saints. And the saints were the followers of Jesus. And to overcome them and to reign over every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's one of the positive declarations in the Holy Scriptures of a complete apostasy from the church that Jesus established. But the angel didn't leave it there. Then he showed John another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. And that's the only gospel that can save men to preach to them that dwell upon the earth and to every nation, every kindred, and every tongue, and every people. If the everlasting gospel had been upon the earth, there would have been no need of, the, of, the, of a, a John seeing a restoration brought back by an angel. Isn't that the restitution of all things that Peter had in mind when he said that the heavens were to receive the Christ until the restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began? And then the angel didn't only show him an angel bringing the everlasting gospel to be preached to every nation, but saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. We live in the day of his judgments. In the period of my lifetime, there have been more judgments and destructions and mores and contentions in this world than all the history of the world combined before that time. This is the time of the judgments that the angels saw when that everlasting gospel should be restored. And then he adds, calling unto the earth from the... From the uh, to, to, no, see, I have to go back a little to quote it. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. When Joseph Smith had his marvelous vision and saw the Father and the Son, there wasn't a church in this world that worshipped the God that made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. They worshipped an essence everywhere present, a God without body, parts, or passions. And if he has no body, that means he has no eyes, he cannot see, he has no ears, he cannot hear, he has no voice, he cannot speak. What is there left to worship when you take all of those qualities away and then think of the glorious two personages that appeared to Joseph Smith in a pillar of light beyond anything in this world? Now, there are many more wonderful things that the holy prophets were permitted to see with respect to this preparation for his coming in the day when the, uh, when the chariots should jostle against each other, when their uh, uh, light should be like torches, and when they should travel like the lightning. That's as far as my time permits. But I love this work. I know it's true. There's no one else, no other people in the world that have fulfilled the words of the holy prophets as have the restoration of the gospel in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. I pray God to bless you all and bear you my witness of the divinity of this work in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.